my brother keeps a human head in his closet. I hope I don't end up that way. This thing, it's gonna follow you. Somebody gave it to me. And I passed it to you. It could look like someone you know, or it could be a stranger in a crowd. It could look like anyone. Santa Claus only brings presents to them that's been good all year. To the ones that ain't done nothing naughty. All the other ones, all the naughty ones, he punishes you. See Santa Claus tonight, you better run, boy. You better run for your life. Bring me one of those chickens. You got money to pay for it? You paid for it. <laughs> no, but we're the king's men. So, you got money? Not a penny. I'll still take that chicken. You don't seem to understand the situation. I understand that if any more words come pouring out your mouth, I'm gonna have to eat every chicken in this room. You lived your life for the king. You're gonna die for some chickens. Someone is. The symbol is associated with a pagan deity named Bagul. He consumes the souls of human children. Early Christians believed that Bagul actually lived in the images themselves and that they were gateways into his realm. I am seriously positive these were not here. How would we have, like, just made a campsite in between three piles of rocks just by coincidence? You don't think this is strange? Hello, welcome to Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Review Podcast, Volume 1. This is co-host Phil from the Dark Discussions Podcast, You Know Nothing, Jon Snow, A Game of Thrones Podcast, and a Westworld Podcast, Bullets, Brothels, and Butts. I am doing a side podcast where I will... Uh, do a few reviews. So, uh, from this point on, I have already recorded some information and I will, uh, pick up there. Um, and, uh, let's get with it. And actually, tonight is a special episode. This is actually a spin off episode of the Dark Discussions podcast. Uh, once again, I'm co-host Phil, and unlike our regular episodes, uh, this new spinoff uh, won't be a weekly podcast, but maybe once a month or so, and basically what it will be is myself reviewing various Blu-rays, DVDs, and releases, mostly from boutique or specialty companies such as Severin, Arrow, Vinegar Syndrome, Code Red, Raro, Redemption Video, Olive, Kino, Larber, Criterion, Synapse, and Artsploitation, among many others. Basically, as folks know, uh, within the past eight years or so, uh, numerous companies have popped up. Some have become defunct, but uh, the ones that I just named as well as a few others, are in existence and doing quite well. And basically what they've been doing is grabbing old videos, or old movies, I should say, from the past, mostly 
cult films or independent cinema from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and whatnot, to, or even foreign films for that matter, and basically remastering them and re-releasing them to the general public, uh, basically back in the day, the 1980s specifically, um, horror and genre films were given fairly good releases on videocassette. Uh, basically, you could go into any video store uh, in any town in the U.S. of A., anyway, and you could go into the horror section, and there would be big boxes um, displaying pretty interesting artwork, mainly pulpy, similar to the 1950s sci-fi novels and horror novels of, of bygone days, uh, but in this case, in movies, and what it would be is people would go in, just randomly grab what looked like a pretty cool cover. Usually the cover was never uh, going to match um, anything in the film, so the films were usually not as good as the artwork and the marketing for these films. But many of these films have become um, cult classics. Uh, Midnight Cinema, Grindhouse, Drive-In Cinema, that are well-liked by a good many of us, people who would listen to a horror podcast or horror review site. And it's been a pretty good run of uh, these boutique uh, companies re-releasing some pretty awesome films. Uh, Cheesy or not, um, they're still pretty awesome films. Uh, There's a lot of good horror films besides The Exorcist, and The Thing, and The Omen, and Rosemary's Baby that everybody knows about uh, from Europe as well as independent cinema that have really shown, um, well, you know, it's really just good films, horror films that people want to see, especially since uh, they're a lot of times fresh or new because... The last time people saw them were 30, 40 years ago. And now we, uh, younger folk, are now able to see these films um, at the whim of video on demand or purchasing a disc from any of these these companies. Uh, so, so what I'm, I'm going to do uh, with this, um, for folks who know uh, about my buddy podcast, Jason Lloyd of Horrorphilia, he does a podcast where he talks about all the recent releases during a two-week period, uh, old or new, from uh, boutiques all the way to universal releases, and talks about whether or not the discs are good and the movies are good and whatnot. And then as folks who may listen to this podcast, Dark Discussions Podcast, uh, we do have a, uh, a piece called Terror Tantrums, which is a piece in the podcast that Patrick Lacey, author, Massachusetts author, who or New England author, who uh, reviews one film from one of these boutique companies um, weekly in our Dark Discussions podcast. And so uh, what I've, I've decided to do is do similar to uh, the Buddy Bits and uh, the Terror Tantrums, in which instead of uh, just one film like Patrick Lacey does weekly, I'm planning to do multiple films. And the format of how Jason Lloyd would do my uh, bloody podcast spinoff, uh, Bloody Bits podcast. 
Um, so I, what I've done is randomly pick six or seven films, or, or really not randomly, but basically films that I've had on my stack to watch. I've bought, um, just haven't watched, and I've decided to watch them, you know, it was the holiday weekend. I wanted to watch some good horror films, some good cult films, so I picked a few up and put them in. And uh, now what I'm going to do is uh, review those films. Uh, no rhyme or reason. Um, just six or five or seven or eight. I'm not even sure how many I'm going to review yet. Uh, of uh, discs from some of these boutique companies and uh, discuss uh, what I thought about them and whether or not uh, you... The listeners will be interested and maybe want to go out and search search for them. So um, let's get into this uh, episode. I'm going to do some background on each of the films and then talk about uh, how uh, they were, whether I liked them, whether the transfer is, is important. Basically, the transfer is probably the most important thing. And, um, and the extras and uh, so forth. So uh, let's... Uh, go off and uh, talk about some of these films. Okay, the first disc I'm going to talk about is a film. uh, It's on Blu-ray. It is from a company called Redemption. Uh, Redemption is a boutique company that releases a lot of uh, independent and foreign horror films from bygone days. Uh, some of their more famous films they've released are by cult directors such as uh, Jean Rollin, a French director, uh, Jess Franco, a Spanish director, uh, among others. Um, they are a British company, and they do have um, rights to films that they can release here in the U.S. of A., so all these films will be available on region A or region 1 which is North America uh, for Blu-ray or disc Um, this first film um, is an English film it is an interesting thing because it's not part of Hammer Uh, as we all know uh, Hammer Studios was the big English company from the 50s, 60s and 70s that released numerous genre pictures um, they were well known for uh, making stars of folks like Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Um, the things that was interesting about them is that even though they dominated the market, England did have a various other uh, production companies and independent cinema that was genre as well. Some of them uh, was Amicus, which was basically uh, a weaker or, or not as large um, company as Hammer, but was probably their direct competitor. Uh, but a number of other uh, horror films that weren't necessarily related to Hammer or Amicus uh, were released, including things like um, The Wicker Man and um, uh, the actually um, a pretty good um, group of films by a director called Pete Walker. Uh, Pete Walker wrote directed numerous horror films and exploitation films, uh, originally mostly exploitation in the 60s, and he became a director of horror in the 70s. And then just out of the blue, uh, near the end of the 70s, he just stopped making film. Uh, But he is still alive and well today and uh, has done numerous releases 
uh, for companies with uh, director's commentaries and whatnot by him. However, um, though uh, Pete Walker is uh, someone that I may uh, bring up in a future episode, uh, this this one's actually a different film, uh, not related to any of the folks that I just named or any of the companies that I just named from. And uh, it's called Killer's Moon, and it's uh, from 1978. Uh, it's directed by um, a guy named Alan Birkinshaw. Uh, he also wrote the film. Uh, it is an interesting film in the sense that uh, some folks um, would call it a slasher film. Uh, it actually had some interesting taglines because they were, when it was released, trying to pump it up as a more disturbing film than I Spit on Your Grave. Um, but it really... Um, isn't it was just obviously hyperbole just to um, get uh, I guess press and as we all know um, all press good or bad is basically good press um, I can uh, re- give a wiki on this film and discuss I guess the background um, of the story anyway and I'm going to do a spoiler free for all these releases. So uh, this one actually comes directly from Wikipedia, and it basically is, a coach full of schoolgirls breaks down in the Lake District of England, forcing the girls to take shelter for the night in a remote hotel. Meanwhile, strange and macabre things are happening to the locales and their pets, and it is revealed that four escaped mental patients... Uh, Names simply Mr. Smith, Mr. Trubshaw, Mr. Muldoon, and Mr. Jones, who have been dosed with LSD as part of their treatment, are roaming the area convinced they are living a shared dream in which they are free to rape and murder, both of which they choose to do numerous times before the belated arrival of the police. Um, So that's, that's the wiki. So as you can see, um, based off of what they say here, it does sound like it would be similar to a um, spit-on-your-grave type of storyline. Uh, however, uh, that is not the case at all. Um, the most interesting thing uh, to start off is basically, as it's discussed here, that the schoolgirl's bus breaks down. Uh, we've seen this in numerous uh, films. Um, most recently, I would think maybe Cheapest Creepers 2. Uh, I've also seen it in films all the way back in the 60s. Um, the Vampire and the Playgirl, as well as, um, Bloody Pit of Horror. So, it's, it's not a, a new thing where a bus breaks down. Uh, another example of that would be the Vampire's Night Orgy. Um, so, so this is, this has been done numerous horror films. Um, now, one of the things about this film that, that was curious, and actually was the thing that got my attention, uh, the earliest was, uh, the fact that, um, one of the, the stars, one of the schoolgirls, um, uh, though, to be honest, um, they're all college age co, co, co- eds, 
Um, but one of the, the girls was a woman named, actress named Lisa Vanderpump. Uh, the curious thing about Lisa Vanderpump is uh, she only did a handful of films. Um, but what happened was is she is now uh, quite famous because she happens to be a um, reality TV star. Uh, she was one of the real house, housewives of Beverly Hills. And uh, now actually has a, her spin-off show called Vanderpump Rules. Uh, she's also been on uh, Dancing with the Stars. Um, I n- I'm quite familiar with the woman because uh, my wife happens to watch her sh- reality TV shows. And uh, she's fairly wealthy um, restaurant tour. Um, I think she may have uh, married into wealth. Uh, but either way, she's become quite successful. Um, and in this film here, this was when she was a young model, a uh, young actress before she was famous, where she tried to uh, become an uh, actress, did a handful of films, and then um, pretty much quit, most likely probably because uh, she uh, became the um, jet setter uh, that uh, she is today. Um Another curiosity about that is uh, the same year, 1978, um, John Carpenter's the, the Halloween film. Uh, one of the, the two children, the little girl that um, Laurie is babysitting in that film, uh, is actually now also uh, on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And that girl is uh, Paris Hilton's aunt, the, the sister of Paris Hilton's mother. Um, I forget the, the woman's name, but uh, Curiosity, the same year, 1978, two real housewives of Beverly Hills were in two horror films on opposite sides of the Atlantic Ocean um, and uh, are both now uh, famous for being jet setters uh, on reality TV. Um, back to this film itself. Um, well, the film is um, definitely has the, the tone of uh, what you would uh, see uh, in England. Um, you know, the, the uh, English countryside, very rural, um, the stone walls, the, the rural town with the their um, sheep and whatnot, um, but basically, uh, what happens is the bus breaks down. Uh, they're going to have to wait, obviously, because this is a rural town. They're not going to have the parts, so they head off uh, looking for a place to stay. Someone mentions that there is a fancy uh, mansion-type hotel. Uh, in the area, uh, basically a vacation spot for uh, the outer-towners uh, to come from the cities. And they head over there, and they discover that the place is closed and will not be open for another two weeks because this is uh, what they would call in the New England area, where I'm from, uh, the mud season, or spring, which is usually the time that a lot of these major resorts in the New England area closed down in the rural sections of New England 
and do their refurbishing and changes and whatnot. Um, because obviously during the summer and the winter when uh, there's a lot of activities, uh, they're always going to be open and here in New England, uh, autumn as well because of the leaf, uh, changing and things of that nature. Uh, here and it appears this is intentionally what they're trying to say here is that this is the spring. It's mud season. We're closed. We're not going to be open for another two weeks. Uh, please come back then. But when, um, the teacher, the woman teacher, explains their situation. They allow them to come in and decide to uh, stay there, uh, at least for the night. Um, the bus driver, however, heads back to uh, the bus, and he's going to wait there and just in case someone comes by that could possibly help them. And that's the beginning of the setup of uh, the film. Uh, there's a couple other characters of importance, uh, a couple of folks... Uh, that are camping out in uh, the woods, or I guess really more of um, the pl- the rolling hills, I guess, um, of England, uh, not too far from where this mansion hotel resort happens to be, as well as where the the bus may be, and in a very very small village, um, not too far from where the bus is too. Um, however, we discover that there's a sanitarium in the area as well and there's a breakout and guess what mayhem um so so the thing that's interesting about this film um or makes it different than most slasher films is that there are four killers uh and they're mental patients meaning that they um, are well they don't necessarily know that they're what they're doing is bad because uh, as the wiki stated uh, they're basically um, not of the right mind Um, LSD therapy uh, whether that's ever the case I have no idea but I doubt doubt it maybe back in the 70s and uh, as a result these folks are um, not even believing when they're killing and maiming people. They don't even believe that they're actually doing it because uh, they believe they are in some sort of dream set, I guess. Um, And so we get um, people getting picked off one by one. Um, And oddly, the the, the film is is very... um, ensemble cast so that there there is a lead there's a few leads i guess but they don't have any more screen time than i guess uh the some of the peripheral characters that will become victims so um it is it is interesting how that's set up because you have a large number of characters that could turn out to be possibly the lead or even the survivor girl uh, at the end of the film for the fact that we're not following one specific uh, girl throughout the film. So uh, that, that was that was good, I thought. Um, the screen presentation is, is fantastic for uh, such an obscure horror film. Um, mo- most critics, if you go online, will say that it's 
a obviously a B midnight film. Obviously not a great film for that fact. Um, but as horror fans, um, many folks uh, would probably like it, and they believe um, what I've read anyway that if more people had seen this film or knew about this film, it would have become uh, a staple cult classic rather than uh, the obscure midnight film that um, it is today. Um, And I I would agree with that because it does have uh, four interesting villains. Um, Even though the director says otherwise, they are somewhat reminiscent of uh, the four villains are from uh, A Clockwork Orange, uh, very similar uh, how they act. Uh, they wear the same type of clothes. And though the director, again, claims uh, he did not try to, quote-unquote, rip off A Clockwork Orange, you could probably say that he he at least got some of his idea from that film, uh, at least how he presented the villains and how they addressed um, so they have quirky villains. They have, um, uh, good horror, horror kills. Um, there's, there's plenty of, um, violence and nudity. Um, it's definitely the type of film that, um, would be made or people would, would be familiar with, uh, for a seventies film because of, uh, uh, the things that folks were able to do in the 70s that have pretty much died away now, unless you count TV shows like uh, Game of Thrones or Westworld, where the violence and the nudity can be of the extreme nature. Um, and as a film, um, if if uh, you can get through a couple of those parts, um, it does have excellent payoff. Um and since there's a large ensemble cast, uh, the body count um, or thriller aspect of uh, who who's going to die next um, is most certainly something that that is appealing um, to how this film uh, goes through its runtime. Uh, so. It's it's definitely a film uh, of note that folks should check out, especially if you're a slasher fan. It's um, it could easily be put in uh, as a triple feature, double feature, quadruple feature with two or three other slasher films from the 70s or 80s with ease. Uh, it has an attractive cast of co-eds. Uh, has uh, really cool villains, if quirky, and. Um, the presentation on the Redemption disc, uh, distributed by Kino Lorber, um, is actually quite good uh, for its HD remastering. Now, availability. Uh, this film is available for video-on-demand rental uh, from your usual suspects. Uh, so, um, Amazon Prime, iTunes, whatnot. Um, however, one of the curiosities is that this was originally released, as I said, on Blu-ray on um, March 13th, 2012. So it's already a four-year-old uh, release. Um, but 
the thing that's good about it is that you can buy the Blu-ray brand new on Amazon in American dollars for $9.76. And to put that in perspective, the film actually has numerous extras that are really good. Uh, obviously, I mentioned that it had an obviously a HD transfer from uh, the original 35mm negative. Um, it has an interview with actress Joanne Good, who happens to be um, one of the co-eds. Uh, her death was one of the um, cooler ones. Uh, don't uh, watch, uh, obviously, these extras until you see the film. Um, then an interview with uh, the director, Alan Birkinshaw, but also an audio commentary by both Alan Birkinshaw and um, Joanne Good uh, together. And then they have a, a theatrical trailer and a photo gallery. So it has a lot of good extras. Um, the interviews, I've watched both interviews, um, uh, on-camera interviews by the the actress and the director, and then I uh, listened to the commentary, and it's very informative. Uh, it's really good. Um, one of the most interesting things uh, was Joanne, uh, how she, um, Joanne Good, how she talked about how she got the role and how all the women in the film got the role. Um, basically, um, the film was being cast, and there's a um, casting agent that has a bunch of um, younger ladies and he basically would give them the job when he was contacted by uh, a director or a producer or whatnot and uh, Joanne uh, Good along with uh, the Vanderpump woman and others just were all shipped together uh, to be seen and, and they were put in the movie um, but uh, for a package for 976 with all those extras um, HD master um, I mean that's a steal uh, especially if you like slasher films especially if you like um, English horror films um, and again it had this film been snatched up by someone like Arrow or Scream Factory instead of uh, Redemption and had it been a brand new release rather than uh, already four years old, uh, this is an easily a twenty twenty five dollar uh, DVD, well not DVD, Blu-ray of a cult film uh, from nineteen seventy eight. Um, so one of the earliest slashes um, out there. Uh, so that's that's uh, Killer's Moon. Uh, hopefully. That was somewhat informative, and uh, we'll go on to uh, the next film. The next film that I'm going to review is a film called Lady Terminator. This is a 1988 film. It is obviously, uh, a, I guess, a spin off of uh, the real... 1984 James Cameron film Terminator. It is from Indonesia. It is directed by a man named Jalil Jackson, and it stars in the title role a woman named Barbara Ann Constable. Uh, this film is only on DVD. 
Uh, it's by uh, the boutique company Mondo Macabro. Mondo Macabro is uh, one of the better uh, releasing companies of obscure uh, cult films and genre films. Um, they're always loaded with excellent extras, and whether it's DVD or Blu-ray, um, their prints are damn good and uh, uh, highly recommended as a company by me. Um, the film uh, is a curiosity because, again, it is from the nation of Indonesia, which isn't necessarily known for its, um, I guess, uh, cinema. Uh, though, as we know, um, recently there's been uh, some rejuvenation of genre cinema from the nation in the past couple of years, including uh, one of the segments of VHS2, as well as um, the Raid Redemption films. Um, now, uh, the director, uh, as I said, Lil Jackson, uh, is actually a pseudonym, or a pseudonym for uh, a man named Tijut, Dajil and uh, Tajut Dajil uh, back in the 80s and 90s was uh, arguably one of the biggest um, genre exploitation directors uh, from that area. Uh, some of his films have been released in the United States, mostly by Mondo Macabro, uh, including... Um, the films Mystics in Bali, which is uh, probably one of the biggest cult films from Indonesia. It is based off of uh, an interesting monster um, that basically is a woman vampire whose head is removed from its body with its intestines hanging and it goes and basically um, does what vampires do as a headless floating uh, intestinal beast. Um, some folks who've played the uh, Dungeons & Dragons game may know uh, of that monster from, I believe, uh, the Fiend Folio Monster Manual uh, back in the day. Uh, other films that uh, he has done uh, was Dangerous Seductress, which was another pretty intense and uh, cool uh, film that's unfortunately out of print at the moment, but uh, Mystics of Bali is still available by Mondo Macabro. Uh, Dangerous Seductress, unfortunately, is now um, rights have been returned uh, and uh, is no longer in print. Uh, Lady Terminator, however, is still in print, and the disc is only $14.99 on Amazon. It is loaded with extras, as all of Mondo Macabro discs are, including um, a documentary on Indonesian exploitation cinema, which includes uh, interviews with the director and uh, goes through the career of not only him, but other films uh, from Indonesia. Um, now, uh, th things that are interesting about the film, uh, the lead actress, uh, her name, as I said, was Barbara Ann Constable. Uh, she actually... Um, doesn't have many film credits at all, um, and that was generally intentional. 
Um, basically, uh, what I discovered was is that she, and this is from some research from a website called Damn That Ojeda, um, which actually was able to interview her, the first interview in maybe 15 years since the film uh, had been originally released. Um, but basically, she is uh, an Australian. Uh, she actually uh, may have been born in London based off of uh, her bio, uh, but uh, basically is uh, Australian uh, for heritage. Uh, she used to work in Hong Kong back when Hong Kong was still owned by the UK, and uh, she was a dancer, I believe, based off of this interview. Uh, she happened to be um, a model as well and did some acting on the side. Uh, she also was a penthouse pet of the month, and she uh, was offered um, this job um, for the film as the lead, um, and she only agreed to do it because she was told that the film would only be released in Indonesia as a, a film for uh, the Indonesian crowd because she believed that the film uh, was probably going to be a very cheesy uh, grade B film as she states in the interview um, also of interest is that the entire film is dubbed um, so everybody spoke their normal languages and then it was all dubbed with uh, language accents of uh, basically sounds to me uh, Midwest American typical accent. So even um, uh, Barbara Ann Constable, her Australian accent was replaced uh, with an American woman uh, doing her part in the final release of the film. And uh, she thought that was uh, quite curious and odd. Uh, she retired from cinema and um, has now does now live uh, in Australia, uh, a quiet life of uh, children that are now um, older, and uh, does not really do um, much uh, but um, homemaking and, and some uh, writing on the side. Uh, details I'm not familiar with. You can find her, uh, as the article says on Damn the Ojeda blog uh, on Facebook where she is under her name Barbara Ann Constable so anybody who would like to look her up there send her questions whatnot could go do so um, the interesting thing about this film is though it's called Lady Terminator it is not a science fiction film uh, instead of a robot in the future coming back as in its namesake the Terminator uh, instead, a folklore of Java um, mythology is used. There is a goddess in old Java mythology called the South Sea Queen. And the South Sea Queen is a goddess of the sea, similar to Neptune or Poseidon from European uh, Mediterranean cultures. Uh, she basically controls the waves when seafarers such as fishermen and whatnot disappear, she is usually blamed for uh, taking them away. Uh, she is known uh, to specifically go after attractive men 
and take them away. Uh, but she is also known to uh, take away anybody who is generally uh, disappears from the sea. Uh, she is basically a giant mermaid, uh, and her color is cyan. So she is uh, sea green in color, basically. Um, those who are familiar with the folklore um, and believed her as a true goddess, believed in the goddess, uh, would not dress in cyan colors uh, to not offend her. Um, so instead, uh, yeah, the, the killer monster in this movie is not a robot, but basically a car, a reincarnation or a possessed version of, um, the South Sea Queen of Java mythology. Um, also of note, uh, about Indonesia, Indonesia was a dictatorship for a number of years, uh, from, uh, 68 until, um, the nineties. It was ruled by a, um, a guy named General Suharto, I believe, and he was fairly, um, I guess, non-religious and um, pro-Western. Um, the nation itself is the largest nation of uh, in the world with uh, that's predominantly Muslim. So um, out of all the countries in the world, uh, Indonesia is number one in population for Muslim uh, folk, uh, at least as a majority. I believe Pakistan is number two. And, uh, though India has as many Muslims as, or almost as many Muslims as Indonesia, it is not predominantly a Muslim nation. So, uh, I'm not including, uh, India in, um, in, in, uh, when, when discussing this. Um, so now, uh, since the dictator has, re he resigned because he was, uh, there's much unrest. Um, it is now technically a democracy, though a larger um, Islamic, um, I guess, fervor or or, or uh, pride or, or whatnot is uh, somewhat not necessarily sweeping the nation, but um, has um, uh, reintroduced itself. Um, and so forth. So uh, that's a little bit about the nation of Indonesia, which is interestingly a country of numerous uh, ethnic groups, over a hundred, they say, is what I've read. And um, it is an island uh, nation. Um, now, uh, this film here, what, what happens is basically this uh, pretty uh, woman, basically, and uh, Barbara Ann Constable uh, comes from America to do uh, some research uh, for um, a university uh, and when she goes out scuba diving uh, to search uh, some ruins that are underwater um, all hell breaks loose and uh, the South Sea Queen uh, comes back from uh, her uh, dormancy to uh, basically get revenge on somebody and uh, basically what it is is there's a prologue in this film of uh, uh, a queen a woman that's basically possessed by the queen and um, a man 
uh, a lover or whatnot decides to uh, change that and when he vanquishes her she says that she will come back in a hundred years to destroy his ancestors and uh, that's basically what happens uh, unfortunately for uh, the the PhD student uh, played by Barbara Ann Constable she happens to be the person that's chosen uh, as uh, the one to be possessed um, so uh, is this a good film? Um, well, uh, I posted on uh, the Facebook group, Dark Discussions Podcast Facebook group, that I was watching it, and numerous people uh, immediately came out and said they loved the film. And is it a good film? Not necessarily. Uh, it is cheesy, B-movie, uh, you know, quote-unquote nonsense. Um, and uh, let me read the back of the jacket from Mondo Macabro to explain what um, the film is more than just my earlier uh, explanation. It says, Get ready for a wild ride. A sexually rapacious Asian goddess known as the Queen of the South Sea possesses the body of a young female skin diver. Armed with an AK-47 and an endless supply of bullets, this murderous Lady Terminator takes to the streets on a revenge-filled rampage. It's like Kill Bill, but with oodles of sex. This combination of Asian black magic and Western-style shoot-em-up is one of the key cult movies of the 80s. Even the jaded patrons of 42nd Street were shocked to see how the lustful Lady T dispatched her male victims. Previously released in a cut, full-screen version, this DVD restores the film to its original length and is presented in a digitally restored format enhanced for widescreen TVs. Um... So, as you can see, the film is um, uh, it, got, it got the you know the, the violence and the, the nudity, and it sure does. Um, the set pieces are are really good. Um, there's no CGI, 1988, and um, all the the action sequences are real. So the car chases, uh, the explosions. These are real explosions. So you literally see cars blow up. You see um, uh, a big scene at an airport where things blow up. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, the I guess the money they put into it for such a low-budget film. Um, uh, for nonstop action story, whatnot... Um, yeah, you can't you can't uh, take your eyes off the screen. It's 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 a fun film. I mean, uh, it's got everything. Uh, it's not boring at all. Uh, it doesn't uh, last too long. It's only an hour and twenty two minutes. Um, it's wall to wall um, action, and uh, the lead lead characters, including uh, Lady Terminator, um, who we only see half the film basically because there we have the perspective of the descendant of um the person she's going after plus uh the handful of folks that are helping her survive um with with that i guess not ensemble cast but you know the good folk and then lady terminator we do get two different perspectives and um the lady terminator yeah she's kick-ass um it's it's a sad story, oddly, uh, for for this because um, her fate, uh, the PhD student's fate, uh, was just random, similar to any horror film where uh, someone gets possessed by a demon or or turns into a vampire for no reason. 
because we get enough of her as a person prior to her being possessed by the South Sea Queen uh, that uh, we do like her character. Um, but when she does turn into the Lady Terminator, she she's nonstop and she's she's uh, great. Um, the actress was awesome. Uh, I got to give her uh, full credit for um, everything she did. Um, Barbara Ann Constable um, does all the set pieces, no issues. She uh, actually even does uh, a bunch of stuff that um, are taken right from the original Terminator film. Uh, There's a scene where she has to cut out her eye, uh, similar to Arnold Schwarzenegger did in that film. Um, There's a scene in a club, uh, similar to the one uh, where Schwarzenegger goes crazy uh, at Linda Carter and Michael Bean. Uh, Linda, not Linda Carter, Linda Hamilton. And, um, there's a few others that are similar, but there is a hell of a lot of scenes that are original and, uh, are not taken from, uh, Terminator. So it's not beat for beat the same as, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's The Terminator, which obviously they are trying to ride the coattails of. Um, now, uh, other things about the film of an interest. Um, well, uh, if you're a fan of midnight movies, this is for you. Um, as I said late, earlier, uh, it's full of uh, action, uh, horror, violence, nudity. Um, it has everything that um, a midnight movie would would uh, attract folks to. Uh, so, if you're a fan of horror films or action films, or or exploitation films, it's all three. Uh, as I said, the presentation is fantastic. Mondo Macabro, in my opinion, is arguably one of the best um, producers of um, remastering of films because they always pack everything with fantastic extras, and the um, the print is always great, and no exception uh, with this film here, Lady Terminator. Uh, once again, you can find it for fourteen ninety eight or something like that on Amazon and for all the extras you get including uh, the long documentary on Indonesian exploitation cinema um, among the other extras um, it's definitely uh, worth the price um, another thing also even though it is a 12 year old disc um, as we saw with um, the other Mondo Macabro uh, film that uh, I mentioned, um, Dangerous Seductress, uh, that film uh, is out of print, and who knows when or if Lady Terminator will also. Uh, but another important note for this film, especially if you're a collector and fan of uh, old, older uh, cult uh, midnight films, this film is completely unedited, uh, so all the violence, nudity, and whatnot are all there, because there was a Indonesian release of this film that um, has it was changed a bit, and those things that are different, are, in other words, alternate scenes to replace um, the violence, certain violence, and certain nudity and whatnot that uh, couldn't play in Indonesia. Um, they would splice that in for all the Indonesian cuts uh, of the film. So 
if this film does go out of print and is re-released, who knows uh, which print will become available. Fortunately, this one is the international cut of the film. And as extras, it does have the alternate takes and alternate scenes that were in place for the Indonesian release. So you can see the differences between um, the international or the director's cut of the film versus um, the edited or changed format that was released in uh, the conservative nation of Indonesia. Uh, so, anyway, uh, that's uh, the second film I've, I've talked about. Uh, so, uh, I guess we can get on to uh, the next one. Okay, we have a new terror tantrum. For folks who don't listen to or haven't listened to the Dark Discussions podcast, a terror tantrum is basically similar to what we're doing in this episode here, but by a author from New England named Patrick Lacey. Patrick Lacey uh, happens to have a couple of novellas and short story collections, uh, which can be found on your online retailers. And basically what he's going to do is uh, do a review on a film called Hobgoblin, which has been released by Vinegar Syndrome, another boutique uh, Blu-ray DVD uh, company that uh, has remastered the film and uh, put it out. So let's hear what he has to say. And welcome to another edition of Terror Tantrums. Uh, my name is Patrick Lacey. I'm a horror author and longtime listener to Dark Discussions. If you're new to the podcast, this is a segment where I take a look at a slightly lesser known or obscure film and hopefully give it an unbiased review as usually I'm seeing the film for the first time. That is the case this week. Um, this is a film directed by Rick Sloan and it is called Hobgoblins. Um, now, before I give you the review, I'll just say it is put out by uh, our friends at Vinegar Syndrome. If you've listened to prior episodes of Terror Tantrums, you know that I have sort of a mixed um, mixed feelings about Vinegar Syndrome. On the one hand, they have put out some fairly decent films that I've liked, and I've reviewed those films. However, they've put out some films that I definitely did not like uh, and gave sort of uh, negative reviews on prior episodes as well. So it's sort of a mixed bag in terms of content that they put out. Um, but I do think, however, that it is important that they're putting out some of these films, even though I don't think they're great uh, movies themselves. Their releases are usually uh, pretty stellar. And also, I, as I mentioned on prior episodes, I think it's important for um, a lot of different kinds of movies to have a wide release because in a way um, – if they don't release these movies, they're kind of just going to die and, and fade into obscurity. So in a way, um, you can see them as film historians, we'll put it that way. Um, because I think something like only 40% of all movies made it from VHS to DVD and even less so far from DVD to Blu-ray. So like I said, you know, Vinegar Syndrome, even though they're not always pumping out A-plus films, uh, they're putting out some interesting films at the very least, and what they're doing is important with that preface. Um, I will just give you the back cover copy, and we'll dive into Hobgoblins. Okay. 
It says Kevin just got hired to be the assistant night watchman at an old film vault. Warned to stay out of one mysterious chamber, the rookie guard can't help but satisfy his curiosity and unwittingly unleashes a group of hobgoblins, furry aliens who grant people wishes only to kill them in the process. As the body count starts to rise, Kevin, with the help of his friends, decides to track down the deadly creatures before they wreak havoc on the city. Um... Okay, so I'm laughing because I'm just remembering so many parts that we could we could go in depth and talk about, um, but it would seem kind of pointless because this film is not a good one uh, by any means. In fact, it is so not good, it very well might be not only the worst film I've reviewed for Terror Tantrums, but the worst film I have ever seen ever in my life. And I've seen Geely. Um but that is also kind of its charm. So we have to look at this in two different ways. And I have to warn you, do not watch this movie and expect it to be good. Don't go into this thinking there's anything of redeemable value in the film itself. However, it, this is the definition of so bad it's so good. In fact, um, if you're a Mystery Science Theater 3000 fan, uh, this is uh, sort of a fan favorite episode. I didn't even realize they'd done an episode on this because um, I hadn't heard about this. Um, the, I, I just vaguely remember seeing the cover of the VHS at my local video store, but that was all the information I had on it. So you have the basic plot there. Um, it is more or less a third tier gremlins is the way I would put it. So you have gremlins and then you have ghoulies, which I have a, a very, very fond uh, space in my heart for. And then you have hobgoblins. So um, it, it basically, it never explains why these little creatures have these powers which essentially it's not necessarily that they grant wishes it's more like they get into your mind and then um make your innermost desires come true it's not like they're a genie and these people are asking them for wishes so i think that's a little bit misleading so know that going in okay um know that they don't really cause that much havoc a lot of the death toll and the body count comes from the wishes quote-unquote wishes um that are quote-unquote granted so it's not don't think that it's like these little creepy hobgoblins around killing people because that's misleading as well so got that aside now let's talk about um, let's talk about the hobgoblins themselves. So the other movies I mentioned, like Gremlins, is like animatronic uh, puppets, just masterpiece. Um, they sort of the benchmark for these creatures run amok movies. There were tons of knockoffs in the eighties, but the other one, the second tier one that comes to mind that was almost as successful is Ghoulies One and Two. Um, those aren't. Anywhere near as good as the Gremlin effects and the Mogwai effects, but um, they do the job and they sort of have a, a little charm to them. Then we come to Hobgoblins, where, as I mentioned, Gremlins, you know, puppeteering um, is masterful in that film. <laughs> They're literally just puppets in this, so much so that you, I don't think you ever see them below the waist. Um, so there's a scene where they're driving a golf cart around, and I think that's the only time you see all of them in one sort of frame. And the reason for this is they are legitimately puppets. There's a scene where one of them is attacking a girl on a couch, and you can see that the girl's hand is up the puppet's ass. Like, you can see her just holding this puppet almost as if, like, she's the one attacking herself with it. Um, it's just, they didn't even bother to kind of cover that up. So that's what you have to understand going into this film. 
terrible, terrible movie, but it's so hysterical in the fact that it exists. So the acting is, I, I, I genuinely can't tell if it was done to be funny in an attempt to be comedic or if it's just that bad. But there's a couple like fight scenes that go on forever. They rival the, the fight scene and they live and the music, um, has, has like every time a punch lands or kick, um, there's this, this part in the music, it's almost like a, um, reminds me of something from the 60s Batman cartoon, but it's almost like this horn thing. And it's timed to the punches, which aren't in any time signature for all you musicians out there. So it, it, it just results in this weird, weird timing that is very disorienting and it happens two or three times through the film and it threw me off so much uh yet i couldn't stop laughing in the other main part of the film um that i want to talk about or main scene is at one part the hobgoblins um attack these people in a house and they grant quote-unquote grant using that word lightly uh one of the main characters a wish and she sort of disappears with the hobgoblins to this nightclub i won't say why uh, not that really plot spoilers are your main concern here, but the rest of the characters uh, show up in a group to this nightclub, and I didn't time it exactly, but what happens is they get into the nightclub, they sit down, and they watch this band play, and I think the band plays like three songs. And it's literally, if I would say a roughly a 15-minute scene that does not add anything to the movie itself. And in fact, it just makes it, drag so long but the longer the scene lasts the funnier it gets and that's another testament to how bad uh but good this film is so i think the main thing oh one more thing i want to mention before closing is that um don't think too much again about this wishing um aspect because it's never explained and it really i don't know what they were going for with that aspect i don't know if they were trying to give it a little depth or try and be a little bit different from ghoulies and gremlins but it's kind of a pointless thing like this could have easily just been a creatures run amok film and it probably would have resulted in a better film but the movie we got was hobgoblins and we have this weird like granting of wishes and innermost desires thing i i, I can't account for it. i don't understand what they were thinking but it's there uh, and we have to acknowledge it, but I uh, also know that going in that it doesn't necessarily add anything to the film and the film probably would have, uh, probably suffers for it. Um, but yeah, I won't even mention the bonus features. I didn't bother watching them, but the thing to do is to watch this movie with a group of people so that you guys can talk over it so that you guys can kind of give your own commentary of it. Uh, make sure there are plenty of snack foods. Uh, I myself had uh, pizza and Buffalo wings during this movie. And make sure there's a lot of adult beverages because that's where the fun comes from this movie. It's definitely a party movie. Don't just have it on the background. Uh, have it on front and center with all your friends and make fun of it because I have to think that that's why this movie exists. And if they were being serious about it, um, that's just too bad because it is, like I said, possibly the worst movie I've ever seen, but it leads to some of the funniest um commentary you can ever give a film uh so now i want to go out and watch that mystery science theory 3000 episode because i can only imagine how hilarious that is but yes if you're going to buy this only buy this if you are a a completionist a horror movie completionist be an absolute um leading voice slash super fan of creature run amok films in the 80s um or Three, you just want to watch something that's so damn bad that it's 
uh, results in almost being amazing just for that aspect. But like I said, watch it with a group of people. Do not watch this one alone. Uh, it will probably lead to either insanity or clinical depression. Um, that is it this week for Hobgoblins from Vinegar Syndrome. Tread lightly, but if you do tread, uh, enjoy the film. Um, as always, if you have a suggestion for a slightly lesser known or obscure film, uh, hit the guys up on the Facebook group or shoot them an email at darkdiscussions at AOL.com. If I haven't seen the film or perhaps even if I have, I will add it to the ever-growing list. I have some amazing stuff coming up. Uh, the film next week is one that I've been wanting to see for years, and it just got a proper Blu-ray release for the first time. So I am psyched for that, and I hope you guys dug this. I hope you guys dig the next one, and until then, take care. This next film I am going to uh, discuss is another Mondo Macabro film. Uh, once again, the British boutique DVD and Blu-ray release of uh, genre and exploitation cinema. Uh, this one here is uh, actually my first film I've ever seen by a director named Jess Franco. Uh, Jess Franco is uh, fairly well known uh, at least now for um, or by a cult fan uh, and and people who are just like grabbing all these old um, I guess 42nd Street type horror and exploitation films. Uh, he's a director he was originally from Fr uh, Spain um, he started his career, um, basically, he, he really b became big in the, the 60s, because in the 60s, he did a number of horror films that were, uh, very gothic in style, so very much like a Hammer film, um, and they were both in black and white as well as in color, and they played, uh, a lot, um, on the, to drive in and um, city cinemas and were uh, fairly popular. Uh, if you like Hammer films uh, like um, the Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing uh, Dracula and, and those type of films um, his early films uh, Jess Franco's early films are, are excellent examples of um, uh, the gothic feel you would f see in a Hammer film. So if you like Hammer films and you've seen all the Hammer films and now you're looking for other things to view that are like Hammer because, well, Hammer's films have dried up. You've seen them all. Well, check out Jess Franco 1960s films. Check those out. Uh, this here, however, is a film from 1973 uh, and it's actually not a horror film, really. It's a it's actually more of an exploitation film. Um, uh, again, it's from Mondo Macabro. It came out in 2010 by them. Uh, once again, fully remastered. Um, and it's the first release of this on disc uh, that isn't basically bootleg or bastardized because this film uh, was chopped up numerous times, re-released by various companies and and actually even at theaters uh back in uh, the 42nd days 42nd street days in new york where uh, things were changed up and the film was never given its proper um dvd release of what the director intended uh the film is actually uh i'm horrified to say the name of it but it's called sinner 
The Secret Diary of a Nymphomaniac. And uh, let me read the back jacket of the disc by Mondo Macabro. It says, For the first time ever on DVD, we present the fully uncut version of one of Jess Franco's best and most sought-after titles. Linda comes to the big city in search of fun and excitement. What she finds is exploitation and abuse at the hands of a succession of sleazy guys. Searching for love, she enters into a lesbian relationship with a beautiful countess, discovers drugs and swingers, parties, and starts acting in porno movies. She also begins to write a secret diary. The cast of some of the most stunning Euro actresses of the period, wall-to-wall sex and nudity, pot parties, porno shoots, and a psychedelic soundtrack. This is a gem of 1970s exploitation cinema. Uh, Some of the things uh, where it says most stunning Euro actresses of the period, I would agree with that statement. Um, The wall-to-wall sex and nudity, um, there is most certainly a a, a lot of nudity in this film. Uh, Wall-to-wall sex, uh, not not so much. Um, The nudity, though, is is no different than you would see on HBO's Game of Thrones or um, uh, Westworld. Uh, So keep that um, in mind. However, it is definitely not um, a film that could be made today because... um, a lot, lot of a lot of films today, as you know, don't uh, have that. Uh, I guess Game of Thrones type of um, nudity in it. Uh, so it is definitely from the period uh, from 1973. And this film, even though he's a, a Spanish director, uh, it was actually produced in France. Yet the whole film does take place in uh, Spain. So it is a Spaniard setting. Uh, but the film is produced by uh, France. Uh, the, the producer is actually uh, a guy named by a guy named Robert De Nessel. Uh, this is a um, a period where uh, this guy De Nessel did uh, numerous productions of Franco's films. Uh, I would call this. Uh, based off of what I read, um, some things about Franco. First off, he, as I said, did a lot of gothic horror films in the 60s, uh, specifically uh, the awful Dr. Orloff uh, was probably the one that really made him uh, popular, Sadistic Baron Von Klaus, um, The Secret of Dr. Orloff, so a, n- a number of um, films that uh, have this Dr. Orloff character in it, uh, another film called The Diabolical Dr. Z, uh, a lot of these films have been released on disc. Some of them have become out of print because they reverted back to the original owners of the films. But a uh, m- number of them are still available. Uh, he also did uh, a number of English films for a guy named Harry Allen Towers. Harry Allen Towers uh, was a producer in England that uh, did a lot of uh, horror and exploitation films um, that came out of uh, the U.K., uh, so, for example, uh, uh, Franco did some of the more famous films, um, like uh, The Blood of Fu Manchu. So, the character of Fu Manchu uh, that folks know, uh, he actually uh, did and directed a number of those films. Um, he worked with uh, Christopher Lee a whole lot and actually uh, did a Count Dracula film um, with Christopher Lee. Um, that was um, not related to uh, Hammer. He did uh, another film called The Bloody Judge with Christopher Lee. 
uh, he did, um, like I said, the, the Fu Manchu films with Christopher Lee. Um, he actually did a film um, called uh, Eugenie, uh, which is uh, based off of our Marquis de Sade uh, book, uh, also uh, with Christopher Lee. Uh, he did um, uh, Justine, which is another a uh, movie based off of a uh, book by Marquis de Sade uh, that actually has a uh, Jack Palance in it. Um, and uh, from that point, um, he did move on to uh, some films in Spain and Portugal. Uh, but then uh, during the early 70s, uh, he started working with this Robert de Nessel uh, fellow. Uh, later on, he, he moved on and started do- working with a guy named Dietrich out of Switzerland, um, and uh, pretty much made films all the way up until uh, the 2000s, uh, uh, until he uh, passed away uh, at the age of 82. Um, now, th- this film here, this 1973 film, Sinner's um, Sinner, uh, The Secret Diary of a Nymphomaniac, uh, this film here, uh, the stars. Let me, let me get into some of the folks uh, in it. Um, basically, um, the lead actress is a, name, a woman named Montserrat Prue, uh, and uh, she she pretty much. Um, uh, well, I, I wouldn't say she's in the f- film every scene, but she's she's like 80, 80% of the film is around her because there's a side scene because a lot of her scenes are in flashback um, and there's another character that goes around um, talking to folks uh, to get information about the the character that uh, Montserrat Prue plays. Um, other stars of the film are Callie Hatza, who pl- is a friend uh uh, of the Montserrat Prue's character. Um, the other lead actress, I would say, is probably Jacqueline Laurent. Uh, Jacqueline Laurent um, is the woman who... Well, let, let, let me, let me exp- explain what happens anyway, and then I can explain who all these people are. But basically what it is is um, there's this scene where there's a burlesque show going on at the beginning uh, with a couple of women and there's a guy in the audience who um, after the show buys a drink for um, a woman named Linda uh, who is played by Montserrat Prue uh, now Linda and this guy go back to his hotel room and uh, during um, their time there she basically, I believe, drugs him and then kills herself. Um, and so what happens is, um, before, right before she kills herself, she calls the police and says that there's a woman dead in this hotel room. So she kills herself, slits her throat, and, and the cops bust in find this woman dead bloody throat cut this and and uh this guy uh there uh basically uh caught in cold blood and they arrest him so what happens is is uh this guy's wife uh played by Jacqueline Laurent uh her name's Rosa the character um goes to the cops to tr- and says that she doesn't believe 
that her husband would have murdered uh, this woman. And, of course, you know, the cops say, well, you know, uh, uh, it looks like your husband was cheating on you and all that other stuff. And um, so she she just uh, still doesn't believe any of it. And what happens is the cops say that um, another person has come in to, to basically, I guess, claim the body of um, Linda. And uh, this other woman, uh, played by Anne Libert, or Liber, uh, is, is basically a countess, uh, Countess Anna de Monterey. And so what happens is, is Rosa decides that she's going to do her own investigation um, to see what this is all about, because she can't believe her husband had murdered a, a woman uh, it, it just obviously it, it just didn't make any sense uh, so it's it's her going about to various people uh, including uh, the countess uh, as well as um, a woman named Maria played by Kali Hansa who is a um, or was actually the um, other woman in the burlesque show uh, that Linda was playing on um and then she goes to a couple other folks. Uh, there's a woman uh, called uh, uh, Mrs. Schwartz, played by uh, Doris Thomas, um, who was a photographer. Um, and, you know, as I stated in the back jacket of the disc, uh, not only does this woman, Linda, uh, get in with the wrong crowd, but she does um, nude photo shoots and all these other things. Um, and so this woman, Mrs. Schwartz, was, was the photographer. Uh, and whatnot. So um, the story goes back and forth between uh, Rosa doing her research, trying to find out the background of Linda and why Linda's dead and and had her husband really done the murder, and then uh, flashbacks to Linda and uh, her story through uh, the eyes and uh, uh, mouth of uh, other characters. Uh, like the Countess and uh, Maria, the burlesque dancer. Um, also, uh, as the back jacket said, uh, Rosa does also find a diary, uh, which um, comes to play and gives further detail. So you got her interviewing characters uh, to get information, but also reading a diary to get more information. Um now, uh, the, the thing about the, the story, uh, it's your typical nice girl lands up becoming um, uh, someone in, uh, I guess, uh, underground or different life or, uh, um, in other words, they, they land up doing something that they weren't planning to do. So you have a little girl uh, or young young co-ed, uh, I should say who decides to uh, go to the big city and gets caught up in the wrong crowd. Um, and the thing is, is that we found out numerous things, which is she most certainly has been exploited. She most certainly has been treated horribly. Uh, there, there's even uh, a sexual attack on the girl, um, maybe a couple for, for that matter when I think about it. And so obviously she's been created a lot by what has happened to her. 
Um, but the thing that's interesting about the, the film is is that it goes back and forth between the environment around her and the people who are exploiting her to her own decisions and her own judgment and her own uh, uh, actions. So it plays back and forth between is she a victim or is she part of the problem? Um, and it does it well because it shows how she has been treated and yet it also shows her in her own free mind deciding to do things um, that in itself are as bad as um, some of the things that have happened to her. Um, so as a character study, is Linda created by her environment or was she someone that was always possibly going to become, um, I guess, a... So, uh, an exploiter herself, for that matter, um, and she just got pushed over to the edge uh, to be that way because of the things that have happened to her since she moved to the big city. Um, so, as a piece like that, as a story like that, that is very interesting. It, it's it's really well done. Um, for the Rose's story and her going about trying to find things, um, honestly, there's not much there um, because really what it is is she's just a catalyst to move the story of Linda along because she's the one that's just doing the interviewing. Uh, so her scenes aren't as dramatic in the way that Linda's scenes are. Um, now, uh, the things that I noticed about this film is that its cinematography is fantastic. Um, lighting, uh, camera work, all of it is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, Jeff Franco has, has been known as a mediocre film person, a director for filming his films, not necessarily as a director, but as a eye for filming. Uh, he's known to be average at best. Uh, this film, however, uh, the way it's filmed, the way it has its color and its cinematography and its setups are phenomenal. They are as good as anything I've seen in a Dario Argento or Mario Bava film. Uh, the colors um, are used similar to a Dario Argento film, um, and the film stock the, the the way the angles are all all like bava or argento so um uh his contemporary european directors uh at least for this film and again this is my first uh just franco film i had seen uh this one is absolutely well done um just just great um my personal opinion of the film um actually i am quite surprised it was I, I wasn't sure what to expect, um, but this film is great. I, I absolutely love this film. Uh, the story was engaging. Um, uh, the music soundtrack, uh, psychedelic uh, rock and things like that, great. Um, 
the acting was, was phenomenal. It's 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 dubbed like like most European films. Uh, they're filmed in by with different people from different countries speaking their own language, and then um, the the film is then redubbed uh, after the production is is complete. Uh, in this film, the same thing. Um, but based off of that, the the acting itself and and the the dubbers, the people who do the the voices for the actors, all was excellent. Um, the lead actress is great. I, I thought she was fantastic. She's not as well known as I guess some of the other actresses that have worked with Jess Franco. Uh, some of them have become cult favorites of uh, cult cinema and cult fans um some of them being uh soledad miranda and lena rome uh i guess two of the more famous actresses that um have worked with him um but uh this here this woman here that played the lead actress uh linda uh was absolutely great she was a phenomenal actress uh montserrat pru p-r-o-u-s uh, and the rest of the cast was great as well. There's actually a uh, segment, about 10 minutes segment, with uh, uh, the late Howard Vernon, a uh, well-known European actor that was in numerous uh, genre and cult films um, from the 60s to, the, to his death. Um, um, and of course, uh, as, as the back jacket says, uh, with a cast of some of the most stunning Euro actresses of the period. And you, you gotta, I gotta say, it's absolutely true. Uh, every, every one of them, uh, was most certainly stunning. Um, now, uh, the extras on this here, um, are pretty good. Uh, first off, you can, you can watch it in English dubbed or French dubbed with English subtitles. Um, I would recommend just sticking with the English because, again, the film was was filmed in um, by people from different countries speaking their own languages, and the whole film was dubbed. So whether you listen to it in English or French, both are dubbed uh, versions of the film. So stick with the English, and uh, having seen it in the English, it's excellent. Uh, as I said, uh, the dubbing is good. Um there's an introduction by film critic Stephen Thrower. Uh, he's written a, numerous books. You can find his books on Amazon, um, and uh, they are well-received. Uh, interview with Gerard Kikoin uh, is on this uh, newly created English subtitles, as I stated. Uh, there's a seven-minute, uh, I think it may be actually eight-minute trailer of Mondo Macabro uh DVDs, so you get to see the trailers of all their uh, stuff. Um, the the transfer uh, is is fantastic, and again, this is the first time uncut director's cut of the film on disc. Uh, again, this is a, only a four year old disc. Uh, whether it will be able to stay in print forever, I don't know. But as I stated uh, earlier, some of uh, Mondo Macabro, never mind. Uh, various other boutique labels um, only print out a certain amount of discs before they are reverted back to the rights of the owner of the film, and as a result, uh, they go out of print. Uh, and since this film is still in print and available, 
uh, on Amazon, among other places. Uh, it's definitely one that you should go check out, especially if you like midnight cinema, exploitation cinema uh, of the 70s, uh, of European um, feel. Uh, if you like uh, that European uh, midnight films uh, from the 70s, this is definitely one you should check out. Uh, the disc is a little more expensive than the others that I've already talked about. Uh, this one's $19.99. I actually was able to get it for half that price on a weekend sale that Mondo Macabro's website um, had, where they had their whole uh, discography on sale 50% off. And uh, so as a result, uh, I went and bought like seven or eight discs from them. And uh, this here, Sinner, The Secret Diary of a Nymphomaniac, happened to be one of the discs that I went and snagged. So I was able to get it for $10. Uh, but you can buy it used uh, um, for $15.09 on Amazon, at least as of this recording. Um, but um, I, I think, honestly, I think it has a re-watch re value. Um, I, I think I'll put it, uh, in again within the next year, uh, for sure, because it is a really good film, uh, has a pretty good mystery, uh, why did this woman kill herself and try to frame this guy? And the interesting thing is that the ending is awesome because, it, I mean, we're not talking action or violence or anything like that, but, um, the conclusion is 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 just great because Rosa, after she discovers what she has to discover, she has to make a decision, and what she decides is is I wouldn't say shocking uh, or even odd, but it is um, uh, interesting. I guess is the best word I can come up with because it, it's not necessarily surprising or shocking. Or whatnot, but it is definitely interesting, and I won't say what she does, but uh, it, it is it is good. I I, I liked the coda. Um, so that's um, third film uh, for this uh, this uh, edition of Dark Discussions side podcast that I'm doing here, um, and I would say this is a high recommend uh, if you like that type of film. Uh, if you, it's obviously again not a horror film, even though there is some thriller, mystery, and uh, a violent death right at the beginning of the film. Um, but, but um, if you like cult cinema, this is top notch. The next film of note that I watched was actually a. Uh, Double feature um, with the other Just Franco film that I was discussing. I watched two Just Franco films that night, the first being Sinner, A Diary of a Nymphomaniac. But the other one was a film called She Killed in Ecstasy. Uh, she Killed in Ecstasy is a film from uh, 1971. Uh, that's actually when it was released, but it was filmed uh, the year prior. Um, it was originally a uh, DVD release uh, by a company called Synapse Films, which is a pretty damn good company, and then uh, Image Entertainment, 
Um, but now as uh, I've been re-released as a Blu-ray by Severin Films, uh, so fully remastered and all the other wonderful things that um, are done when things are brought into uh, HD and also um, to Blu-ray. Um, now uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about this movie. Uh, background first. Um, so as I stated, it uh, came out in 1971. It uh, is now on Blu-ray by Severn Films, released on 2015. I believe they have 4,000 copies of uh, the disc available. Uh, it is still available now, uh, but uh, whether that means after the 4,000 run has been snatched up, it will go out of print, I do not know, uh, because uh, this uh, company, Severin Films, basically um, another boutique uh, disc company, that they may uh, actually not own the rights to the film, but simply um, made a deal with uh, the owner of the film to produce uh, some of their uh, movies. Uh, it was released uh, basically at the same time as another Jess Franco film by Severin uh, called Vampiros Lesbos. Uh, the only reason I bring up the second film, I have not seen that film, I do have a copy of it, um, is simply for the fact that um, it's a big film uh, release when it came out, both of them, uh, because it was the first time both had come to Blu-ray, and um, it was when Jess Franco... Uh, was um, Korea was being um, not not necessarily reevaluated, but um, horror and cult movie fans uh, have become uh, very aware of him. Uh, oddly, though, um, another interesting fact about this film, "She Killed in Ecstasy," is the style of the film. Uh, her name is Soledad Mara, Miranda. Soledad Miranda. Um, she is a Spanish actress. Uh, however, she uh, married a Portuguese race car driver and lived in Portugal until her death. Um, she died in a tragic car accident at the age of 27. Um, and as a result, uh, her fledgling career as an actress and as a mother and as a uh, as a, a spouse, a, a wife uh, all ended. Uh, she died in August of 1970. Um, I, I don't know if it's specifically because of that or uh, the group of films by Jess Franco that were released in the early 2000s uh, on regular DVD all starred her and so she suddenly now has this revival cult following uh, that's going on, which is a, a somewhat curious. Um, again, uh, most of the films of this era of Franco's career, um, this was right after he had finished working with um, a guy named uh, Towers, an English producer, and uh, moved on to a couple of German producers, uh, Carl Manchin and Arthur Bronner, and uh, they produced a number of his films. And so I'm assuming that this part of Franco's career, um, they were the, the films that were most easily able to be um, produced or, 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 or 
or I should say, uh, picked up for disc release or home release. Um, since I assume that uh, the person who owns all the films from the Arthur Bronner and Carl Mansion time frame of Franco's career, which is late 60s, early 70s, um, owns all those films and uh, was readily available to release and give rights to boutique companies to uh, release the Franco films. And just curiously, Soledad Miranda starred in many of those films. Um, some folks uh, try to say that her career was probably going to take off had she not died uh, so so young and tragically. Um, but uh, my guess is that's just hyperbole for the fact that she was in B films uh, and uh, horror and sexploitation films um, of that time frame. So it wasn't as if she had made it to a big top release uh, European or American release film and then just simply uh, was growing as she started in I guess uh, at least at the time a quote unquote embarrassing genre which is cult films and um, as we've seen in the past some of the big Hollywood stars like Kevin Bacon and Jennifer Aniston and whatnot. Uh, try to uh, ignore their past in horror films or cult films, um, though some have embraced it. Um, but f- as as we know, for every Kevin Bacon, there's hundreds of people who never make it out of uh, B-films. So um, I'm assuming that Soledad Miranda and her quote-unquote potential uh, by fans who of her and of the Just Franco films. It's just hyperbole. Um, now, uh, the film, um, uh, the disc itself, let's talk about the disc. And I'll, I'll read, read what it says on the back of uh, the disc for, for um, uh, She Killed in Ecstasy uh, from Severin Films. S-A-V-E-R-I-N dash films dot com. Uh, also available um, on their website, but uh, as well as Amazon. Uh, their website is a fantastic website. Uh, they always have good sales there, uh, especially near uh, holidays. Um, I, I always go and check their website uh, at least every other week just to see what is up and coming. And they do have a Facebook page as well. I believe they're out of the west coast of the USA, uh, maybe California. Um, and they um, go to many conventions, uh, but since they're a small shop, like most boutique shops, they only uh, head around the the West Coast and uh, Mountain Time um, states when it goes to f- when they do go to conventions. Uh, I know they had gone to one or two um, uh, on this side of the country uh, where I happen to be, but that was prior to. Uh, uh, the podcast. Um, so anyway, uh, this is what it says. It says, for his follow-up to Vampiros Lesbos, director Jess Franco delivered perhaps his most twisted shocker of the 70s. It what fans and critics consider to be 
her greatest role, the luscious Soledad Miranda, in one of her final performances before her tragic death, stars as this vengeful widow who seduces, then murders the men and women responsible for her husband's suicide. Howard Vernon, uh, the star of The Awful Dr. Olaf, Paul Mueller, uh, star of Barbed Wire Dolls, Ewa Stromberg, star of Vampiros Lesbos, and Jess Franco himself, co-star in this Eurocout classic, featuring another epic sexadelic lounge score by Manfred Hubler and Siegfried Schwab, now remastered in HD and featuring all new extras. It's Franco at his perversely erotic best, like you've never seen or heard it before. Um, so that's that's uh, what it says on the back of the jacket, but uh, the plot... Um, is a little more than that. Basically, we have a doctor who um, experiments uh, using um, fetal tissue or aborted babies, and he is disbarred from the medical profession by four doctors. Um, basically, the four doctors of some medical organization. Um, uh, similar to a chamber of commerce for me- uh, for medical doctors, I guess. Um, the the four doctors are played by um, the folks that I mentioned on the back of the jacket, but uh, background on a few of them. Uh, uh, Howard Vernon, um, I mentioned before, he, he was in the, the prior Jess Franco film that I, I watched and just reviewed. Uh, he uh, was starred in numerous Franco films as well as various other um, B and cult films. Um, so he's a he's a very um, well known face. Um, the other other folks um, um, that I wanted to bring up of note is uh, Eva Stromberg. Eva Stromberg is a Swedish actress, a uh, very attractive woman who uh, was also in about six or seven Franco films of this period. Uh, but then uh, I feel she retired from f- film uh, after she got married, um, which was um, right around the, the early 70s. Um, I did mention uh, Jess Franco does play uh, one of the doctors uh, as well. And and then, of course, Soledad Miranda, uh, who plays the wife of this doctor who gets disbarred uh, from the medical profession. Um, the, the, the interesting thing about this movie is, is that it's hard to get on board necessarily with um, uh, the, the doctor that gets disbarred because uh, what he does is he, um, whether, whether folks agree or not agree with um, fetal tissue research and whatnot. Uh, the point is is that he does things improperly without um, going through the proper channels. Uh, basically almost in a... Uh, basically he's like, he's like a doctor, a backroom doctor. Um, and so you know, it's hard to necessarily... Um, support anybody like that but also uh, of interest is that um many many folks who who watch the film may just disagree with uh what that or that type of uh, research and whatnot so so either way um 
it was hard to to back the guy, and he, he was definitely unhinged. Um, his whole character from the very beginning of the film until the the suicide, um, which happens fairly quickly. So no spoiler here. Uh, basically, he um, is just a strange cat. Um, then the four doctors that get him disbarred, which are uh, Paul Mueller, Jess Franco, Ewa Stormberg, and the Howard Vernon characters, um, they too are are not necessarily likable characters, so um, we're definitely not rooting for them. They're part of the quote-unquote establishment, they're obnoxious, they are elitists, so even though the guy that they disbarred may be quote-unquote a scumbag, uh, they too are as well. So um, we have the wife of the disbarred doctor who uh, is played by Soledad Miranda, uh, basically decides to get revenge. Um, so that's where you you get um, at least half the title. She killed in ecstasy. Um, I, I wouldn't say that title um, truly fits the film because she definitely kills and she seduces the four doctors to do what she has to do. But I don't necessarily think um, the term ecstasy uh, fits at all. Uh, if anything, it's more rage and uh, anger and depression. Um, so the, the story is fairly, um, I guess, fairly standard. Uh, basically, a uh, woman's husband dies, woman's angered woman gets revenge. Um, so it really just depends on how she does it and the set pieces that occur. Um, now, the fact check, it states um, that it is um, it's quote-unquote sexually charged, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say that far. Um, it's it's definitely a erotic thriller, but no more or or less than a more mainstream film like uh, William Hurt's Body Heat, for example. Um, so it's it's not truly a horror film; it's more of a thriller, or if you prefer, an erotic thriller. Um, now, uh, is it a good film? Um, yeah, it's a good film. It's, uh, it kept my interest. I enjoyed it. Um, I was curious where it was going to go and, and the set pieces and how it happens are all cool. Um, and, uh, when she kills, uh, the folks, um, it's all behind closed doors. So you get to see the curiosity of, uh, the people and how they act when they're not in front of, uh, uh, you know, classrooms or, or groups, um, being quote unquote loved by other doctors. So, uh, that was, that was good. Um, I, I would state that, um, film is, I think I was going in thinking it was going to be better than it was because, um, as I stated, um, the cult falling behind this film because of Soledad Miranda and Jess Franco himself. Um, 
if you read a lot of uh, horror web blogs and things like that, um, it's pumped up pretty pretty good. So um, I was expecting um, to be wowed, uh, but I was not. It was it was just a good film. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, it definitely has rewatch value. Uh, it's a film I would rewatch again. Um, uh, the lead. Uh, she she was uh, really good, uh, Soledad Miranda, um, attractive woman, and uh, so was an Ewa Stromberg. Um, and uh, all in all, uh, we'll give it a thumbs up, but um, go in with expectations a little lower than anything you've read about the film, uh, because it has been uh, overhyped on the internet uh, the last few years, especially since um, the re-release on Blu-ray in 2015. Now, is it worth still getting? Uh, I would say so. Uh, There's a lot of good extras here. Um, Let me read right off the back jacket the extras. Um, Disc 1. Jess Killed in Ecstasy. Interview with director Jess Franco. Uh, Jeff Franco has passed away, so this is uh, obviously recorded prior to his death. Uh, it's a pretty good long interview, um, and it talks about numerous things, um, not just this film specifically. So you get a good roundabout um, uh, on Franco by Franco. Um, Subline Soledad. Interview with Soledad Miranda historian Amy Brown. Um, this was a really good um, extra. It was pretty long, a uh, good half hour at, uh, at, at least. Uh, it had film clips from all the films, not just Jess Franco films that she had been in because she had done, uh, other films prior to Franco. Um, and it talks about her and her life and whatnot. And, um, this woman, Amy Brown, who they interview, I believe actually has a website. Um, and they talk about that website. Uh, about Soledad Miranda's uh, career. Uh, so that was definitely worth checking out. Uh, Stephen Thrower on She Killed in Ecstasy. Interview with the author of Murder's Passions, The Delirious Cinema of Jess Franco. Uh, that, that's a good one, too. Uh, Stephen Thrower um, has done a number of um, extras for a number of boutique labels. So he's not just... Uh, done um, this extra specifically for uh, Severin, but he's actually done um, the the one on Sinner, The Secret Diary of Nymphomaniac by Mondo Macabro. So, so uh, as a Jess Franco um, historian, uh, he's a regular on Jess Franco discs across different companies. Uh, so it's not just some bozo that... Um, was picked up uh, from the internet as a guy that um, that uh, actually uh, has done uh, enough, including uh, the author of uh, the Jess Franco bio. Um, another extra on this disc is Paul Mueller on Jess Franco, interview with the frequent uh, France star. So this is um, um, Paul Mueller, who played one of the four doctors in this film. Uh, he actually discusses uh, the film... Um, and his role and, and his work with Franco. Uh, this release also has a 
the trail is uh, as well, um, and a second disc. Uh, the second disc um, is actually a CD soundtrack, and that includes the soundtracks for Vampiros Lesbos, She Killed in Ecstasy, and The Devil Came from Akasava. And those three films, uh, Soledad Miranda uh, played for, um, or I should say starred in, and I believe um, is the music written by uh, Manfred Hubler and Siegfried Schwab. Uh, they did all three of those films. Um, and the music, specifically um, uh, this film here, uh, was pretty damn good. There's, there's a lot of good, uh, um, I guess you, you would call lounge music. So psychedelic lounge music. Uh, so it's it's definitely uh, worth uh, checking out um, if you you do like the music for this film or either other two films. She killed an ecstasy. Uh, this music alone is is uh, a good extra because uh, I know a lot of people love soundtracks and music uh, for films and not just the films itself. And uh, here you get. Not only the the movie plus all the extras, you also get the soundtrack disc for this movie as well as two of Franco's other films. Um, so yeah, that's uh, this release here. Um, she killed in ecstasy. Uh, where you, you can find it, I mentioned, but uh, the pricing for it. Um, this one's actually a little more expensive uh, because this one is a uh, limited release. Uh, as I said, uh, I believe there's 4,000 copies, and then after that, I'm not sure if it will go out of print or will be re-upped for a second printing. Um, the prices for it. So we got here on severin-films.com website itself. Uh, the film is actually uh, caught up at a price of $25, and uh, that's actually pretty good. Um, when considering, you know, you get the soundtrack as well. Uh, you can actually buy it uh, alone or jointly with um, Vampiros Lesbos, uh, the other Franco film that stars Soledad Miranda that was released on Blu-ray in 2015. Um, for Amazon, um, you can actually find it for about the same price, um, plus or minus a few pennies. Um, so uh, either place you can go, um, if you get free shipping, I guess you would go with Amazon. Uh, but uh, I do know now Severin Films is offering free shipping for $80 or more if you buy uh, a group of films from them. Um, I myself uh, was able to get it for maybe... Uh, I can't remember if it was half price or whatnot, but um, they do have uh, numerous sales on their website, um, like a Black Friday, where they they uh, give a really good price on pretty much everything on their website. Um, and one other thing I'd like to say about Severin Films, uh, they have excellent customer support. Um, if you need to talk to them or get a hold of them, they respond almost uh, within tw 12 hours. So you know, if you send an email in the evening, you'll get a response the next day if it's a working day. So um, for customer service, um, not that the other boutique uh, 
companies don't have good customer service. But um, Severin, I actually needed to talk to once uh, because I had had mistakenly uh, had for this disc. She killed an XD. The um, slips, I guess the case sleeve for the the disc uh, was mistakenly uh, thrown out by my wife, and uh, uh, they were able to replace it for me. Um, so, uh, I recommend uh, for the film, but also um, for the company, uh, Severin Films, which is a, a great company. Um, and uh, hopefully they they keep keep some keep it up for who knows how many years. But uh, each month they release a few new discs every every month. So uh, always worth checking out. Uh, uh, Seven films. The next film I would like to uh, discuss is a film called Doctor Jekyll. Or actually, the strange case of Doctor Jekyll and Miss Osborne. Uh, this is an Arrow release uh, from this past year. Um, it's a film directed by a guy named Valerian Brovik, and uh, it is a French film. Uh, but they use uh, the streets of Paris and a villa in Paris as um, uh, a London, a London mansion, basically. So, though it's filmed in Paris, France, it is actually supposed to take place in uh, the UK or London. Um, it is uh, a film that had no U.S. theatrical release, uh, had played only once in the UK, and it um, had a limited release. Pretty much everywhere else, um, so it, it had a lot of issues getting distribution and whatnot. Uh, this this film is is a fairly art house horror film, and um, so it would have an odd or a sp- specific type of person uh, that would have the taste to, to enjoy it, I guess. But before we get into the film and whether or not it is something that you may want to check out, uh, let's talk about a couple of things uh, behind the film and the boutique company. Uh, The boutique company, uh, I said, is Arrow Video, it's called. They are out of the UK, and uh, they have been uh, well-known in the UK for many years. But uh, only recently, maybe two, three years ago, they began... Uh, releasing and getting rights to release in the U.S. of A. Because with film rights, there's very odd things where you'll have one company release a disc in one country and another company release a disc in another company, and technically they're not allowed to sell their copies in the other country um, because of distribution rights per com- country basically um, there's even examples of that where you can find a film in Canada but not in the US and vice versa it's, it's very odd um, however folks were able to still buy uh, discs uh, from Arrow through Amazon UK and eBay UK and whatnot uh, prior to um, now where they 
can uh, actually buy Arrow discs that are specifically made for the U.S. and North American market. Um, the the discs um, are pretty pretty well uh, made because they are loaded with extras usually, and uh, copies of uh, the films are really good. Uh, for example, this film here, The Strange Case of Dr. Chekhov and Miss Osborne, are uh, a f is a film, for example, that that never had a proper release ever um, until until now, and that's by Arrow themselves. So um, that's pretty impressive. Uh, now, uh, for the movie itself, uh, I prefer to want to talk about. Um, its source material first. Uh, obviously, this is based off of the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, written by Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson was a Scotch, Scottish author um, who was very prolific and in high esteem during his life. So he was very successful uh, while alive. Um, obviously, uh, the Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is his, one of his most famous um, tales. Uh, it's basically about a doctor who, um, a chemist type of medical doctor who is able to create um, an elixir that turns him into a different person, um, not just mentally but physically, and that person is a sociopath um and and the thing that that makes this story um important in literature never mind just as a fun horror tale is the fact that it talks basically or implies that every person good or bad has a dark side in them and if the proper things do happen the dark side can be brought out and um, as 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 a t psychological tale, as a tale uh, for uh, critics and 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 people who dig deep into meanings of things, um, the the story is more than just a horror tale. Um, and and I've read the book; it's an excellent book. I recommend that everybody uh, check it out. Um, it's it's a it's a hell of a story. Um, he's also known for writing uh, numerous other tales, but uh, another big one, a uh, famous one, one that I loved, especially when I was a child, was uh, uh, Treasure Island. So everybody's heard of these these uh, stories, Treasure Island and uh, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, because both have been uh, made into films numerous times, and um, as a result have kept uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's work alive and well um for a while in the 20th, 20th century um he had become uh out of favor by many literature literary critics for some reason um basically they looked at his work as just horror and children's books and didn't consider him an author of note or an author of significance um which, which is a curious thing, uh, especially since he was so well regarded when he was alive and for the fact that his works have so many subtexts uh, that you would think critical uh, analysis would, would bring out and make him uh, be adored by um, 
professors and, and other people of note. Um, oddly, this, this happened to uh, Herman Melville, uh, the writer of Moby Dick, uh, as well. Uh, so very stupid and, and ridiculous and disgusting, if you ask me. Uh, however, um, in the late 20th century, he became in f- uh, a um, someone that was in favor again by critics, and rightfully so. Uh, because his works um, are just fantastic. The things I've read, uh, obviously I've read those two books, um, but now um, as an adult, just to see the subtext, um, the the tales are just fantastic uh, and very important too. Um, Now let's get into... um, um, this the the director of the movie uh, Valerian Barovic. Uh, Barovic was a director that was actually born in uh, communist Poland, um, and uh, well, actually that's not true. He, he was he was born in Poland before uh, World War Two. So uh, he was he was born when it was basically a one-party dictatorship uh, prior to the communist takeover in the 40s. Um, And then he left uh, Poland in 1959 and moved to France. A very talented man. He uh, did animated films. Um, He... I, it's, it's curious. There's, there's actually uh, we'll discuss the, his animation just a little bit later because it's part of um, the extras on the disc. But um, he did animation uh, back in the '60s. Uh, for example, Terry Gilliam, uh, one of the the guys founding members of um, Monty Python, um, actually gave his work, uh, his animated work, uh, some of the. the the best awards that uh, anyone could get. So in other words, Terry Gilliam basically said uh, one of the ten best animated films of all time was done by Berwick. Um, but an interesting thing occurred uh, in the 70s. Uh, Berwick actually began doing very odd art house horror and erotic films. Um, for example... Uh, films that have actually been re-released, actually by Arrow for that matter, um, and have now actually some of them are being played on Netflix for free. So if you wanted to go watch them there, um, the tales. Uh, some of his more famous films are the Immoral Tales, uh, The Beast, uh, Immoral Woman, uh, and Behind Convent Walls, all from the 70s, uh, among other films. Uh, the Beast is probably his most famous film and that film the beast um is also probably his most famous not just for the fact that he uh directed it but because it stars uh a finnish actress serpa lane uh another um i guess a b movie actress similar to soledad miranda that has a large cult following right now who actually had a much better career uh than soledad miranda um, and actually worked with such other directors as Roger uh, Vadim. Um, and she uh, unfortunately died also at a very young age, um, 47 years old from um, an illness. Uh, um, but uh, w- w- what it is is that most of Borovic's films um, are fairly, fairly... Um, 
controversial because uh, they show um, a lot of uh, full frontal nudity, both male and female, um, and do have some crazy scenes, especially um, uh, The Beast and his films from the 70s, um, which I've not really watched any of them. I, I've only watched portions of them on uh, Netflix before um, I was interrupted, and I, I just never got back to them. Uh, though I do want to uh, rewatch, or, or I should say, watch f- the Beast uh, in its entirety sometime in the future, uh, when I do have some time to do so. Um, but uh, this film here, uh, um, the Strange Case of Doctor Jekyll and Miss Osborne, uh, actually uh, has this odd name uh, rather than Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, because of the fact that um, the lead actress. Uh, in the film, uh, plays a character called Miss Osborne, who, ironically, is the name of Robert Louis Stevens's wife. And uh, basically, what I've seemed to re- have read is that um, Borovic uh, wanted to show that not only do uh, people have an alternate side to them. But their alternate side can also be, um, I guess, the person of most importance in their life. So almost like a Lady Macbeth type of thing, uh, where um, someone can be corrupted uh, and willingly corrupt themselves, but also be egged on by their significant other, um, and in this case, uh, Miss Osborne. Um, so now that uh, I mentioned the characters, uh, there's obviously two characters of significance, um, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne, uh, and we can talk about who they are. Um, first off, the film was actually uh, has a num- numerous titles because um, Borovic wanted to call the film The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne, uh, which is the release it is here. Uh, on the Arrow disc. Um, however, the producers didn't like that title and forced him to call it Dr. Jekyll et les femmes, uh, or basically Dr. Jekyll and the woman. Uh, again, it's a French film. Uh, but the film has had numerous titles uh, besides that. Um, in the Britain, uh, when it was released and had one showing before it disappeared, it was called The Blood of Dr. Jekyll. Uh, and then it was released on video, uh, VHS tape, as Bloodlust. Um, and and uh, there was a couple of others, but um, as you can see, like a lot of uh, midnight films or cult films, um, they are ripped apart by production companies and whatnot and renamed and and changed to brown and whatnot. So you never know what you're going to get until it gets a proper release, which is uh, what we have here, the director's intent. Um, So basically the the story takes place uh, in London where uh, Dr. Jekyll and his fiancée named uh, Miss Osborne um, she is Fanny Osborne. Um, she's played by Marina Piero. Marina Piero uh, has been in a number of Borovic films. She is actually 
uh, I believe his his common law wife um, until his death. Uh, so he actually uh, that was his, his wife, basically the director's wife, and so she got a lot of roles in his films. Um, when uh, uh, she he died, I believe he, you know she she basically got his estate. Um, she's an Italian actress. Uh, the lead. Uh, oh, Henry Jekyll is played by a guy named Udo Kier, uh, which a lot of folks may know who he is. Uh, he was one of those 1960s and 70s actors that were in a lot of horror films. Uh, some of his most notable um, are um, the two Andy Warhol films, um, Frankenstein and uh, the Dracula films that Andy Warhol put his name on. Um, he was also, uh, in the role of, uh, one of the judges in the film Mark of the Devil, which was uh, a really good, uh, horror film, uh, that, um, you could see why Udo Kerr was going to be a star. Uh, a lot of times his voice is dubbed because, um, he has a very thick German accent, because uh, he's a German actor. Uh, but he was also in, uh, the House on Straw Hill, which uh, was a video nasty film uh, in the UK and had not gotten a proper release uh, until just two or three years ago by, uh, uh, once again, Severin Films, um, which released an excellent uh, release of that film uh, with the best elements they could on uh, Blu-ray and DVD combo. Uh, where the on the DVD, um, or I should say a third DVD set that I got, they actually have a documentary on um, the video nasties and the films on them that were banned by Britain. Um, but that's a side note. Uh, either way, uh, Udo Kerr starred in that film as well. Um, among uh, a couple of... Uh, uh, he was actually in John Carpenter's... Um, uh, segment for um, his Masters of Horror uh, on HBO. Uh, so so he, he's done a lot of a lot of things. And anybody who um, um, see, sees him will, will know who he is, especially uh, people uh, in their 40s uh, who watched a lot of the, the reruns of uh, horror films um, on local television back in the 70s and 80s when they were played over and over and over. Um, so th this film has a few other stars in it. Again, Howard Vernon. Howard Vernon, uh, who was in the two Franco films I, I reviewed earlier. He was in this film, too. Uh, Barovic's film. Um, and then uh, Paul McGee, I think his name is. Paul McGee, uh, well-known uh, English actor as well. Um, so basically, um, Dr. Jekyll, played by Udo Kier, is uh, having a um group of bourgeois folk come to his manor in uh the outskirts of london uh basically to celebrate the engagement uh with uh fanny osborne another bourgeois family that uh he is um uh basically uh marrying uh the girl fanny um, so it's basically a party that's going to occur overnight. Uh, the guests are coming in from out of town, other cities, whatnot. A handful of guests, maybe like 10 or 20 or so. And um, they're going to celebrate. 
Um, unfortunately, some of the folks that he does invite are his competitors, people who um, don't um, think his theories um, that he wrote in a book are legit. So there's some t- tension. Um, but either way, um, that's the, the setup for the film. Um, and uh, if you know the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hard, this is a a spin on that um, with a odd a Borovic twist. And like I said, if you've seen or know anything about this director, uh, his horrific and erotic or sexually weird films of the 70s, um, this has that as well. Uh, Basically, we have um, some of the guests get uh, murdered and uh, violated. Their bodies are found murdered and violated. Um, And the mystery begins, who's doing it and why. Um, I won't go into details of... Um, this twist of the story or version of the story because it is a little bit different from the book because again not only is there a Hyde but there is a quote unquote Lady Macbeth uh, his his fiance um, but it's a, a pretty solid film um, some of the, some of the um, story um, can be get confusing a bit um, because if you don't know the background of uh, the book, you could I could see people being a bit confused um, and why and how things do happen. Um, but um, if you are familiar with the tale, um, I think you can get through it pretty easily. Um, there's uh, a few set pieces. Um, it all happens in one night. So that that makes it more believable because if people are getting knocked off and in the middle of um, a part of London that is very populated, um, unlike, say, a cab in the woods, um, you know, people can go to the police here. People can can uh, leave if they want. Uh, but if since it all happens in one night, uh, there's not enough time for any investigation or anybody t- to necessarily escape uh, so I think that that is, makes it a solid uh, plot point there. Um, the the um, the time frame it is Victorian, so it takes place when the book was written. Uh, the book was written in the 1800s, late 1800s, and uh, this this as well uh, takes place. So it is a period piece film. Um, since uh, folks generally probably know the story who's listening to this uh i will say that the transformation is very interesting uh udo kerr um turning into um the dr hyde so jekyll uh, turns to hyde um but there's a different actor oddly that plays um hyde so that that was a, a curiosity um and even uh, in one of the extras udo kerr uh, doesn't even know why that was the case, why someone else played um, Hyde. Now, the actor that does play Hyde um, is a guy named Gerard Zach Zalkberg, who um, actually uh, was in uh, a film called Faceless 
that uh, Jess Franco actually directed. So um, after this, so uh, this this guy has that connection uh, with Franco as well. Um, uh, so this actor, Gerald Zalkberg and uh, Howard Vernon, uh, both uh, actors that work with Franco, happen to work with Borovic. Um, so let's let's talk about the extras on the disc now. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of extras because it's interesting too because some of the extras are directly related to the film, but other extras are just related to Borovic. Um, so let's read it right off the back of the desk here uh, from Arrow Video. Uh, brand new 2K restoration scanned from the original camera negative and supervised by cinematographer Noel Verre. Um, or Noel Verre. Uh, high definition Blu-ray, 1080p, and standard definition DVD presentation of the film released on both formats for the first time anywhere in the world. Uh, so, as you can gather, this uh, disc has um, both uh, the DVD and the Blu-ray, so it has both um, here. It also has um, a flip jacket, so if you prefer the French title that the producer's uh, called it Dr. Jekyll et les Femmes. You can flip the, the jacket if you so desire to do so. Um, so it's a clear case, uh, Blu-ray case. Um, it includes um, English and French soundtracks, uh, optional English and uh, English uh, hearing impaired subtitles. Um, there's an extra for called the Appreciation for Critic and Long-Term Borovic fan Michael Brook, audio commentary featuring an archival interview with Valerian Borovic, and new interviews with cinematographer Noel Verre, editor Kadicha Bariha, assistant Michael Levy, and Michael uh, and filmmaker Noel Simsolo, moderated by Daniel Bird. Uh, brand new interviews with Udo Kerr and Marino Piero, so the two leads, and uh, those were pretty good. Uh, Udo Kier, um gave us the, the point, in fact, that uh, uh, he, he had no idea why he didn't play both roles. Uh, Himorogi, a short film by Marina and Alessio Piero, made in homage to Borovic. Um, and it's a pretty good 20, 25-minute thing, um, that that is basically a tribute to Borovic, um, uh, and uh, it was pretty cool because uh, it was uh, worked on with uh, his wife involved uh, or common law wife involved. Um, interview with artist and filmmaker Alessio Piero, um, Phantasmagoria of the Interior, a video essay on Borovic, Doctor Jekyll. Uh, by Adrian Martin and Christine Alvarez Lopez, and that was pretty good too, because uh, it's directly related to the film. And, and uh, one review on this disc I read, they said you should start with that because uh, it's directly related to um, the movie and the background of the movie. Um, Eyes That Listen, a featurette on Borovic's collaborations with electro acoustic composer Bernard Parmigiani. Um, and speaking of uh, soundtracks, this, this film has a very interesting music cues, uh, like something that isn't necessarily shocking. They play shocking music at points, which is very curious. Uh, but it did make me suddenly uh, get involved with the film uh, a little more and expecting something to happen that oddly never does. Um, 
then there's a, a short film, Happy Toy, by Borovic. Uh, so uh, one of his shorts uh, that he directed is here as well. Uh, interview with Sarah Malinson, former assistant to Borovic, and fellow animator Peter Folds. Uh, Return to Melise, Borovic and Early Cinema, a feature it by Daniel Bird. And then it has the theoretical trailers with optional commentary by editor Kadichi Baria. Uh, reversible sleeve, as I note, noted. And there's an illustrated booklet with new writing on the film by Daniel Bird and archive pieces by Valerian Borovic and Andre Pierre de Mandragues. And I'm sure I destroyed that name. Um, but, uh, um, the, the booklet actually has pretty good screenshots of the film, uh, as well as, uh, two pages about the restoration of the movie. Um, and, uh, there's a, two pages about the, the short film, Happy Toy, that's also on the disc. Um, and there is, uh, pieces of the script, which is pretty cool. Um, actually looking at it at, right now as I'm uh, t- talking to you folks um, and whatnot. The main reason I'm, I'm looking through it, though, is because I was curious who this guy, Bird, is. I'm not really quite familiar with who he is uh, as a person, but uh, it doesn't really uh, state uh, who he is. Uh, but obviously he, he's some sort of uh, individual that either knows a lot about Borovic's career or um, or film in general, um, but um, this disc here, I was actually able to get it on sale half price uh, during a or not half price, but you know like uh, under twenty dollars during a Thanksgiving uh, Black Friday sale in 2016, basically last month uh, or a month and a half ago. Um, but usually the discs, most Arrow discs, go for around twenty to twenty-seven dollars. Uh, so they're fairly more expensive than, say, your regular uh, DVD or Blu-ray release. Um, but as a boutique company, um, they load the th- the discs with lots of extras, as as you have been noted here, and also they do. Um, an excellent job bringing films, little scene films, back to cult film uh, fans uh, and are able to allow them to see films that they otherwise would either never be able to see or unfortunately see in a horrible um, bootleg type copy of the film, uh, such as maybe on YouTube or whatnot. Uh, But here you get um, the first official release of the Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne, um, fully uncut uh, with the director's final intention. Um, so yeah, uh, high, highly um, worth the price. Uh, now, is it worth seeing? Depends. Uh, if you like art house horror films, um, yes. If you're a fan of Udo Kier, which many of you may be, Yes, if you're a fan of Borovic or no Borovic's films, uh, such as The Beast, um, this is definitely more low-key than those films, but 
uh, if you're a fan of Burrow Vic, uh, then yes, you should see this film. Um, um, but again, it's it's for specific taste, uh, so it's not necessarily going to be a mainstream horror film for horror fans or cult fans, and is most likely the reason why. Um, in its original run back in 1980 or 81, when I think the film uh, was released, uh, it did not get the the note that other horror films have. And also, being a Borovic film, it was going to get two things of note. One being uh, that it would be very weird and odd, and therefore get... Uh, attention specifically because of who Borovic was. He was a fairly well-known and loved um, director of cult cinema by the critics. So he was a B-movie director that was loved by A-list critics. Um, and the other reason it would get note is it was it became a quote-unquote lost film, I guess. Um, so that's that can be a pain in the ass for some folks because uh, it's a film that was on many of people's viewing list and they were never able to see it because there was never a release of the film. So that is the list of the films that I have uh, reviewed at least for this first edition of um, my uh, my viewing experience in the past month. Um, not sure exactly what I'm going to call this spinoff uh, dark discussion uh, review podcast, but um, either way, let's go re- review the films that I watched and reviewed tonight. And the uh, first one was um, Killer's Moon, English film um, by Redemption. Then the second was Lady Terminator by Mondo Macabro. The third was the Jess Franco film Sinners A Diary of a Nymphomaniac also Armando Macabro release the fourth film reviewed was the Jess Franco film She Killed in Ecstasy by Severin Films and the fifth film was The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne by Arrow Video. This spinoff podcast, Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews, will be hopefully an ongoing podcast from the Dark Discussion podcast feed where you will be able to uh, hear my reviews on various boutique-released Blu-rays and DVDs by Screen Factory, Arrow, Severin, and so forth. I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, I didn't know how it was going to work. I recorded each of the reviews on separate days, separate um, time, and so forth. So it's they may be uh, different sounding, so uh, hopefully that's not an issue. But either way... Um, uh, hopefully you got some good information. Maybe you'll uh, check these films out or avoid them based off of what I had to say about them. Expect episodes of Halloween Boutique, a psychotronic review podcast to come out most likely monthly, uh, least frequently quarterly, but 
uh, a handful of episodes per year as I uh, watch films and review them. I will record my opinions and information on the films and then put them together and release volume two soon enough. Uh, until then, please listen to Dark Discussions Podcast uh, from our page, www.darkdiscussions.com, or from Stitcher and iTunes. And please send me feedback at darkdiscussions at AOL.com on your opinion of a Halloween boutique psychotronic review podcast as well. Thank you, and talk to you later. Do you like things that go bump in the night, bump, bump in the night, bump in the night, bump in the night? Are you trying to say something like that's been successful in creating an Really?